Past Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f*** you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f***ing Put that in. I don't... So the Tribe drops its third straight on this trip. Six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Talk about the past, talk about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brad is out. Look at, look at this. Brad is out. And uh, David Mann. I don't want to hear to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah, another solid Saturday morning for you right here. Brought to you by JohnPLA.com. Of course, this is the Past Ball Show. Thanks for staying with me. And, of course, tweet at me, at John underscore PLE, as we keep the program interactive like normal. A uh, bunch of different things I want to get into. Of course, I'm going to talk about the state of the game, where it is now, what's going on. We're going to get on a little bit of that in the second hour. And also... I'm going to talk a little bit about bullying in baseball. And you might say bullying in baseball, uh, you don't really hear too many headline stories. And one of my guests today does have an experience of something that may be along the lines of bullying or the way the clubhouse presented itself towards younger players was, was something that may not have been conducive to a young player. And this happened in the early part of the 1990s. But I'm going to hit on that a little bit in the second hour. But we're also going to talk about the 1984 Chicago Cubs and what I find very interesting about that team, the way they started out, and really the way that team was put together. And also the most significant part about what that team represented by winning the National League East that season. And I also want to talk a little bit about Chico Carousel as a Venezuelan shortstop and what he ended up representing in the whole pipeline of Venezuelan shortstops that followed him. And I'm also going to talk about Todd Hunley in 1998. We all know about his injury, but what happens if he didn't get hurt? Uh, you know, the Mets ended up trading for Mike Piazza that season. And, you know, maybe with a healthy Todd Hunley, the Mets may not have needed to make that move. But before I get into all of that, I'm going to play an interview I recorded this past week with former Major League pitcher Chris Hammond. And Chris pitched 14 seasons in a Major League, started out as a starting pitcher, was actually an original Florida Marlin in 1993, and ends up retiring in 1998 at age 32. A couple of years later, he decides to give it another shot, and he ends up becoming a dominant relief pitcher, particularly in 2002 when he came back with the Atlanta Braves. He pitched in 63 games that year, pitched to a .95 ERA, one of the best 
relief seasons that we've seen in recent memory. And of course, he ends up finishing his career in 2006 with the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, he made the postseason with the Braves and the New York Yankees and had a pretty good career. But one thing that stands out about Chris Hammond is his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's something that I brought up a number of times on this show. I talk about my feelings. Uh, Bernie Carbo had a very good, uh, you know, discussion about how his uh, finding Christ ended up saving his life after he got into some rough times uh, during and after his playing career. But Chris Hammond has a, a story similar to that, but maybe maybe not from not a, a, a rags to riches type of thing, but uh, one that he always acknowledged a place in his life and it was taught into him at a young age and he was able to pass that down to his kids. So. Hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with former Major League pitcher Chris Hammond. This is John Pielli, and I'm joined right now by a left-hand pitcher that pitched uh, several seasons in the big leagues, and that's Chris Hammond. Chris, thank you for having a couple minutes. Good to have out. Hey, Chris, um, if you could go back as far as you could remember, um, if you can just tell, tell a little bit about what got you into baseball and what your earliest baseball memories were. What got me into baseball is my dad. Um, really, the style of coaching that he had as, as me growing up. I mean, he made it fun. He didn't yell at me. He didn't yell at, at, my, at my teammates. And, uh, and, and that, that's really what, I guess, kind of halted my big love of baseball. I mean, I just grew up loving baseball. And, and uh, we're good. World League today, it, it's all changed. It's all business. It's all who can make it. What parents can yell at, yell at the poor kids, among the coaches are yelling. And it's, it's just, I don't see any fun at it. And, and uh, but getting uh, back to me growing up in, in, in World League 45, 40, 40 years ago, I mean, um, we, we didn't have. The, the contracts of, of 10 years, $300 million. And, and I just feel that parents today look at those, that, that money and, and one, part, one part of it. And, uh, but uh, I, just, I just feel that when I look at it, 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 my career, I just, I just saw the love of the game. And, and, uh, and that, that's what that's the memories I have is of growing up and playing baseball. Yeah, I tell you, man, you, you know, you really touch on something important there because you see the way, and, and obviously it's something that's gone on for years. Um, you know, parents sometimes get a little too attached to what their children are doing, and it's it's easy to forget. And you know, unfortunately, it's it's forgotten way too many times that all all, ch all a child wants to do at a young age, whether they're playing a sport, whatever they're doing, is they just want to have fun. I mean, competition is part of it, but it's not, you know, it shouldn't be the only thing. And it's, it's great to hear that, you know, at such a young age, you, you had put in your mind that you're, you're just there to have fun. And, that, and that's, that's really what kids should do when they go out there and first, you know, play sports for the first time. I, I, feel, I feel that in, in my career, in my, my baseball, growing up as a kid, the biggest thrill that I ever received was when my AAA manager called me up to his hotel room in Buffalo, New York and said, you just kind of got called up to the big leagues. 
it was the best days I've ever heard. But if I would have lived just like kids are today, they're living and their dream and their goal is to make it to the major leagues and get paid billions of dollars. And most of them will never uh, live that dream out because that's their goal. No, I tell you, but it stands out too. Did, did was there was there ever a time that you realized that you had a gift? I mean, I'm sure you know, you get to a point you're pitching well, and uh, from what you're telling me, you're not really basing it off of stats, and you're just out there having a good time. But was was there a moment that you that you realized that hey, what what you were doing, you were pretty good at? I, I don't think it was. It was up until maybe I was four or five years deep into the major leagues. I mean, because I. Like I said, I play baseball because I love baseball. And, and, and to me, once you once you start building yourself up and, and, and going, man, I'm pretty good. That's when you that's when the falls come. And and, and I just my focus was to be the best base, the baseball player that I could be and have the, have, have the most fun I can I can have doing it. And and the results. I mean, I wasn't the best pitcher. I wasn't the best hitter. But I played 18 years of professional baseball, and I look back at it because it was because I loved it. Now, that, that, that's definitely special to hear because uh, you know a lot of people I talk to are, you know don't really have that same perception and you know it's something that that I'm, I'm glad I'm talking with you about because it's something that hopefully could spread the word out about how fun the game of baseball is because it, it really is if you're out there you're out there on the field it's you know it's kind of a child's game the way it was was set up with this the, the field and the bases and uh, you know just for a, a group of kids to go out there and I have you know I have a young daughter that's out playing and softball, and the, the thing that the thing that makes me the most proud of her is that she's she's happy doing what she's doing. She goes out there, there's a smile on her face that you know she's just enjoying what she does, and you know you, you hit you hit it right on the head. I mean, it's it you know the competition, uh, you know, probably has gotten to a point where it's a, where where it's it's a little too much of a preference as opposed to what the love of the game should be. Yeah, I uh, I get to speak to a um, eleven and twelve year old. Um, state championship banquet, and uh, one of the, the things that really hit all the parents in the face was when I said, these kids would be much better players if they could play out in a, in a pasture with no parents. And it was just, it was dead silence, and I'm like, I'm serious. I mean, you parents are taking the fun out of, of, of these kids being the best safe that they can be. And uh, it was just a, it was a big impact on the parents from just saying that one sentence. No, absolutely. Once again, John Pielli here with former Major League pitcher Chris Hammond. Now, you know, talk a little bit about your 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 run and your your playing career because you know you had you had a couple of years. You had a very good season down in uh, down in the American Association. Uh, you won the pitching triple crown, and that led to your call up in 1990. Um, really, up until 1997, you bounced around a little bit as a starter, and and then you you know you had a point where things weren't going so well. For for you and you retired. Was that a point where you felt in your own mind that it wasn't as fun for you as you wanted it to be? Well, it came to the point where I had a, a bone spur in my elbow uh, when I was with the Red Sox and I had surgery and at, at the same time my wife went into labor and I had six months so she went on bed rest, bed rest for three months so um, 
No question. Looking back on, you know, your 18 years that you, that you pitched professionally, is there one moment that stands out to you of something that you, you're, you're really happy to be part of? Well, I mean, after, after pitching in the major leagues for three and a half years and, and uh, making the Braves team out of spring training and, and our first um, series of the year, I gave him a three-run homer to Jeremy Burnett, and I'm like, Oh my goodness, I just probably just got myself released. And uh, back to Wadale, Alabama, I prayed. I just told God that I, I'm just going to pitch every game like this. It's going to be my last. And, and to pitch 75 innings and give up five runs for the rest of the season and have a ERA below one, I'm just like, what just happened? I mean, I, I mean, this can't be real. But uh, if I look back at that season, it was it was probably the, the highlight of my of my baseball career, and and, uh, and that, that really I guess catapulted my my baseball career went to the Yankees, and and and, and for the next three years it was just it was just amazing uh, to look back at my career and, and look and, and and really see that most uh, of my bravery right here that. Uh, no, it absolutely did, and I tell you one thing that stands out is the fact that you know you're you're always you're always there to acknowledge the the Lord's presence in your life. Um, talk a little bit about that. I mean, it's something that you know we get to a day and age where. Uh, you know, religion is not is not as as uh, dwelled upon and accepted in the hearts of a lot of people. Um, you know, a little bit about you know you know the Lord's presence in your life and and what it's what it's what it's done and what you're able to share with people. Well, I, I, I grew up in church my whole life, and in uh, in, uh, in 2004, we were playing. I was playing for Oakland A's, playing the Anaheim Angels. And uh, I went into a Barnes and Noble, and uh, I picked up this book, Welcome Holy Spirit. And I, I, I thought to myself, it, it was a world can write a book on the Holy Spirit this big. And I put it down, and I walked around on the other side of the aisle looking for another book. And, I, and then the same book, Welcome Holy Spirit, it was in a different section. I'm just like, pick it up again. And I read that book, and I finally realized why. The United States is so lost because we we become too busy. We we, we have we have too many better things to do than to, to uh, worship God because we have everything. So, uh, in in one of the very first verses out of the Bible that uh, that God showed me once I started studying His Word is is Second Timothy four three and four. In the last days, people will no longer listen to sound and health teaching. They will live their lives for their own selfish desires. They will seek teachers who will tell them whatever they want to hear, and they will reject the truth. And I'm like, oh my goodness, here we are. So that's just, that's, once I started allowing the Holy Spirit of God to, to transform my life into a little Christ running around, I just, that the Bible started becoming so evident in our in our nation today that that people don't want to hear it. I mean, we we have everything we have. We we, well, we have a good job. We have food to eat every day. We have, we have school. We have this. We have the worst God. Where's Jesus Christ in your life? 
No, I absolutely agree with every part of that, and I, you know, I hope, I hope you continue to, to do what you're doing with that because I, I know you're touching a lot of people and you're helping out a lot of people to see, you know, the truth and what they need to do to just make sure that they're acknowledging that God's in their life and maybe do more than they, they think they possibly can. Chris, I really want to thank you for having some time. I appreciate you giving me a couple minutes, and best of luck to what you're doing, and, you know, you know continue on. Great spending a couple minutes there with Chris Hammond. Of course, his story, uh, you know, his, his relationship with God is something tremendous and something that personally I, I like to continue to keep the message going. And I'm glad when I have players like that that are, you know, not afraid to acknowledge the Lord's presence in our life. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. What we're going to do is we're going to take a break. And on the other side, we're going to get into Bases Empty Blog, talk a little bit about the 84 Cubs, a little bit about Chico Carousel, and a little bit about Todd Hunley as we try to finish up the first hour right here on the Passball Show, brought to you by JohnPLE.com. Hey, I'm Sean Big Daddy Lynch. I'm Joe Delisanti. And I'm Tim O'Brien. And we're your favorite tailgaters. Listen to our show every Tuesday morning from 11 to 12 on NTR Radio. We'll tempt your palate with football, basketball, baseball, hockey, you name it, we got it. That's right, we do. We'll stir things up, voice what's grinding our gears, and just talk plain sports. We hold nothing back. Sports Talk Radio, are you ready for the tailgaters? Hey guys and gals, want to have a great time dining out while watching your favorite sport on HGTV? Then come on down to Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, located on Route 1 South in Trenton in the Mercer Mall. Hi, I'm Deja. And I'm Corey. These are great deals all week, bound to whet your appetite and satisfy your hunger. Check out our Bun Day Mondays, where you can have a delicious cheeseburger and fries for only $6.99. On Tuesdays, we have all-you-can-eat wings all day, just $12.99 per person or $10.99 for boneless. On Wednesdays, you can get 10 boneless wings and an order of fries for just $6.99. On Saturday, kids eat free for every meal ordered by an accompanying adult, and the meals are served on Frisbee. We have half-priced appetizers from 10 p.m. until close every day. You can then enjoy your cold draft beer with our mouth-watering crab clusters for only $5. Remember, we are located in Trenton on Route 1 South in the Mercer Mall, just south of Quaker Bridge Road. For any information, call us at 609-520-WING. That's 609-520-9464. So come on in and watch your favorite football team while having a great meal, served up by the nicest and the hottest girls anywhere. Hope to see you there! Bases empty blog. Go ahead, laugh. Laugh all you want. But the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told. Okay? Bases empty blog. 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 Oh, yeah. Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, right here on the MTR Radio Network, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. Don't forget to tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli, as we keep the program interactive, keep them coming. And, uh, you know, of course, we continue discussion during every running of the Passball Show, which is found right here on the MTR Radio Network. Uh, if you're not listening Saturday from 10 a.m. to noon, it also show also replays Saturday afternoons from 6 to 8 p.m., and Sunday mornings from 4 to 6 a.m. 
and Sunday evening from 9 to 11 p.m. But uh, you know, if you follow Bases Empty blog, which of course you can find at johnpielli.com, and you could also switch over on mtrmedia.com slash johnpielli and follow some of the stories that I've written while the program is going on. I talked a little bit about the 1984 Chicago Cubs, and this is a team that obviously doesn't get as much attention because they had a two-game-to-nothing lead in a best-of-five uh, NLCS and ended up losing the next three games to the San Diego Padres, who ended up going to the World Series and, of course, lost to that juggernaut Detroit Tiger team, the Detroit Tiger team that went 35-5 and during the regular season. But, you know, the Cubs don't get a lot of attention. But if you realize, if you go back a little bit in time, uh, the Cubs were going through a rough stretch in their franchise history. They were not very good and uh, really hadn't had a lot of success until or since the uh, late 1960s, the teams that had Ernie Banks and Billy Williams. Uh, they got a little bit better in the 70s thanks to Ferguson Jenkins, and then later on they ended up trading for Bill Madlock. So they were competitive, but this was a team and organization that never seemed to get itself to the top. And Dallas Green, after the 1981 season, was hired from the Philadelphia Phillies organization as the team's general manager. And Green, of course, was coming off of a World Series championship that he had won himself as the manager of the Philadelphia Phillies in 1980. The Phillies made it back to the playoffs in that weird 1981 season where you had the strike and uh, the split season and the two division winners and the first ever uh, division series championships in Major League Baseball history. But after the 1981 season, uh, Green and the Phillies parted ways. Uh, there's been many stories about why that happened. Maybe the Phillies wanted him out. Maybe Green, um, in some stories, decided that he wanted to leave and go somewhere else. But the bottom line was Green was no longer the Philadelphia Phillies manager and instead left to take over the Chicago Cubs organization as the general manager. But on May 25th, 1984, Green made a trade with the Boston Red Sox, and he acquired right-hand starting pitcher Dennis Eckersley in a deal with the Red Sox in exchange for first baseman Bill Buckner. And there, there's many different ways you can go with that statement. You could talk about what Eckersley ended up becoming after he left the Cubs and joined the Oakland Athletics under Tony La Russa, becoming one of the most dominant closers that the game has ever seen, and certainly one of the best the game has seen in the last 30-plus seasons. You could talk about Bill Buckner and his success that he had initially with the Boston Red Sox. Put up very good numbers, was the team's number three hitter, was certainly a staple player. Uh, during the 1986 World Series championship run by the Boston Red Sox. And listen, you, you, know, you know Bill Buckner, and you know what he will and forever will be remembered for. And that, of course, is that ball going through his legs in game number six off the bat of Mookie Wilson. But I'm not going to go there with this. We're going to talk about the Cubs and how they needed to add a starting pitcher. And they got themselves Dennis Eckersley in a trade for Bill Buckner, and Bill Buckner uh, was having some success with the Cubs, but not in 1984. In 1984, the Cubs had decided to go with a guy who played a lot of outfield in 1983, uh, a guy by the name of Leon Durham. And you, you want to talk about parallels to the two players. It was Leon Durham in the 1984 NLCS that let a ball go through his legs 
that allowed the San Diego Padres to put up a rally and win one of the three games when they won one games three, four, and five and came back to defeat the Cubs and make it to the World Series themselves. Now, the, of course, the 1984 Padres have a story of their own. And if you followed MLB Network, there's a, there's a documentary called Triumph, Tragedy and Triumph, or Triumph and Tragedy. And it talks about what happened to the Padres and, of course, more importantly, the deaths of Alan Wiggins and Eric Shaw and uh, the veteran players that were on that team. But let's talk about the Cubs for a second. Because, you know, Jack McKeon in San Diego was known as Trader Jack. But we don't really talk about Dallas Green and the amount of moves that he made since he took over as the Chicago Cubs general manager in October of 1981. Now, you talk a little bit about Green, which I mentioned about his relationship with the Phillies. Now, remember, he was the, the manager on the field there and he knew about a lot of the talent that they had in that organization. And after he left and joined the Chicago Cubs, he ended up making a couple deals with the Phillies. In fact, three in particular made dividends. Of course, there's the deal that he made with the Phillies when he traded Ivan de Jesus to the Phillies and got back Larry Boa and a young kid that could play second base by the name of Ryan Sandberg. And of course, Sandberg ends up making a Hall of Fame and certainly was a very big piece on the 1984 Cubs and certainly was a big piece on the 1989 team that won the National League Eastern Division. But he also made some other deals. He traded Keith Moreland for Keith Moreland and Dickie Knowles, sending Mike Kruko to the Phillies. But he also made a deal prior to the 1984 season when the Phillies sent Gary Matthews and Bob Denier to the Cubs for Bill Campbell and Mike Diaz. During the 1983 season, a deal certainly that, if you remember from what happened later on, a deal that had mixed results, the Phillies uh, ended up acquiring Willie Hernandez, the left-hand pitcher, from the Cubs for right-hand pitcher Dick Rutvin. Now, Rutvin was actually the opening day starter for the Cubs in 1984, but of course Hernandez ends up going on to the Tigers where he would win uh, the Cy Young Award in 1984 with a dominant season as the closer. Now, in addition to the Phillies trades, I think you could call Dallas Green Trader Green because he also dealt for third baseman Ron Say from the Los Angeles Dodgers, uh, pitcher Scott Sanderson from Montreal, um, White Sox pitcher Steve Trout. Uh, in fact, if you look at the starting nine in a lineup for the Cubs in 1984, only catcher Jody Davis came through the Cubs farm system. First baseman Leon Durham, who I mentioned before, was acquired prior to Green coming to the, to the Cubs from the Cardinals in a deal that sent Bruce Souter to St. Louis. Now, Green had traded for his entire what started out as a four-man rotation with Ruthven, Chuck Rainey, who came over from the Red Sox in 1983, and Sanderson and Trout, like I mentioned before. Fifth starter Rick Rushell who wouldn't pitch into the 14th game of the season, was coming off of surgery himself from a rotator cuff tear. Uh, in addition to the Eckersley trade, of course, the one that stands out was the move that he made to get Rick Sutcliffe. And he traded Mel Hall and Joe Carter to the Indians to get Sutcliffe, who went 16-1 and that season and won the Cy Young for the National League in 1984. 
Now, he, he also got Ron Hassey and George Frazier in that same trade. And uh, ended up, after a while, Ruthven was out of the rotation. And Rainey, who was the number two starter and a guy who you know got the first several times through the rotation when they were going with a four-man rotation, was sent over to Oakland in a deal that brought Davey Lopes over to the Cubs. But looking back at the team, the 1984 Cubs were ready to win, absolutely. Lee Smith was the dominating closer and a guy who I think should get into the Hall of Fame. Um, was certainly a, an impact player that they had solidified the back end of the game. Uh, among the 1984 Cubs, there were seven players who had won a World Series with either the Phillies of 1980 or the Dodgers of 1981. The problem, it, it was made it, the fact that it was certainly a win-now type of situation. Uh, the future of the Cubs, with all the veterans they had on that team, was not looking extremely bright. And I think Green deserves respect for putting together that team that went for it in 1984, but he deserves the blame for the team falling apart shortly thereafter. And, of course, you remember teams like the Cardinals and the Mets who went back and forth in 85, 86, 87, and 88 and kind of took over that division. And even the Philadelphia Phillies, the team that Green left, were, were a lot hungrier and in a lot more pennant races than the Chicago Cubs were after 1984. Now, uh, you know, if you look at the Cubs and, you know, of course, the win for now mentality, which some teams do, but not as many do anymore, uh, certainly would have paid dividends if the Cubs ended up winning the World Series in 1984. Of course, they are, they have the longest drought in the history of Major League Baseball. They haven't won a World Series since 1908. And that's over 106 years since they've last won. But this is also a team that hasn't won an NL pennant since 1945. And the team in 1984 that won the NL East was the first time that they were in the postseason. Of course, after 1968, uh, MLB changed the format with the expansion and had two division winners. This way you had two teams play elite championship series to win the pennant and play for the World Series. So the Cubs had won their division for the first time since 1969. And, of course, if you remember 1969, the Cubs were in a very good pennant race with the Mets. They ended up losing out. The Mets win the World Series that year. But, the, you know, the Cubs from, <clears throat> from 1984 to 1945, that's a long time between playoff appearances. And, of course, the Cubs made it back in 1989, winning the NL East, and lost to the Giants in a tough series as the Giants ended up losing to the Athletics, uh, which, by the way, had the guy I talked about to start off this piece, Dennis Eckersley, closing out the games for them. Once again, John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, right here on the MTR Radio Network. Don't forget to tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli, as we keep the program interactive. Now, I've touched on the program several different occasions. We've talked about the, uh, the integration of Major League Baseball, and not just for African-American players, but how it's become a world game. And you got players, of course, coming over from Asia, whether it's Japan or China or Taiwan and, uh, of course, the Latin American countries. And then you got Cuba and the Dominican Republic and Haiti and Puerto Rico, which, of course, is the Commonwealth of the United States. But, you know, when we talk about... Uh, some of the history in regards to uh, foreign countries and Latin America and Latin American players. Uh, you remember me talking a little bit about Hiram Bithorn and his impact to the game. Of course, Luis Olmo and becoming the first player, the first Caribbean-born player to hit a home run in a World Series game in 1949. But 
If you remember a shortstop that used to play for the Chicago White Sox named Chico Carousel, on March 26th, 2005, he passed away at the age of 79. Like I said, a Venezuelan-born shortstop. He was the first in a series of players to dominate the defensive side of the sport. Chico played from the years of 1950 to 1959 and made the All-Star team four times. A subpar offensive player, Carousel hit just 258 for his career, but he was a very fundamentally sound ball player who had more walks in his career than strikeouts. He also had 67 sacrifice bunts and even hit more than 10 home runs in a season twice as he finished his career with 55. Of course, Carousel was an incredible defensive shortstop who perhaps never got the credit that he deserved. His best seasons defensively came before the start of the Gold Glove Award, which was instituted in 1957 for both leagues and starting in 1958 with a player at each position selected in each one, both the National and the American League. It's hard to quantify a defensive player in that time because the advanced stats had been had, had really, you know, they are attributed to older times but they weren't attributed while these games were going on. So I can't use a stat like war, defensive war, and talk about Chico Carousel and rank him up against a shortstop, let's say like an Ozzy Smith or an Omar Vizquel, because I don't think that's fair. You're not really comparing apples to apples there. You have defensive metrics now that are traced back to a certain time that you could reasonably track um, a player's range and stuff like that. And, you know, through the seasons of 1950 to 1959, you didn't really have that. So if you're looking at what people say or you're looking at uh, games that are being broadcasted on a radio and very few on TV, I, I have a hard time saying that you could quantify a, a player defensively that played in that time. But to talk about Carousel defensively, I'm going to use a couple stats that Baseball Reference helped me out with, and I'm not going to use war. I won't. I, I don't think it's it's a good enough stat to use in this particular situation. From the years of 1950 to 1955, he ranked in the top five in the AL in both putouts and assists. His 102 double plays turned in 1954, led the AL, and he finished top five five other times. And he finished his career with a 9.69 fielding percentage, which is very good for a shortstop. Um, he, he led the league three times in fielding percentage. And among the modern defensive stats, he led the AL in total zone runs in both 1953 and 1954. His range factor for a shortstop was in the top five of the AL four times from 1950 to 1954. Like I said, I'm going to take those stats a little bit less serious than some of the other ones, but I think you could quantify them a little more than looking at defensive war in the 1950s. But, you know, you look at the fact that he was the premier defensive shortstop at his time, and they didn't have the gold glove, like I said, until 1957. Now, Carousel was the first in a series of Venezuelan shortstops to have success in the major leagues. Most notably was a guy that came right after him, Luis Aparicio, who, of course, won nine gold gloves in this, from the seasons of 1958 to 1970. He hit 262 for his career, by the way. Dave Concepcion, also from Venezuela, won five gold gloves for the Reds from 1974 to 1979 and hit 267 for his career. 
Ozzy Guillen, who of course most recently is known as a, a very good major league manager. I know he had a rough year in Miami last year, but I think he had a lot of success as the manager of the Chicago White Sox. But he was a very good defensive shortstop. He had 264 for his career. Omar Vizquel. Listen, I don't have to say anything more about Omar Vizquel. Uh, 11 gold gloves, 272 hitter. Among contemporaries, in case you're interested, some Venezuelan-born shortstops that we've seen. Alex Gonzalez, who most recently played for the Detroit Tigers a little bit this year. And, you know, within the last couple seasons with Atlanta and Milwaukee. And, of course, was well-known for his days with the Florida Marlins. Alicides Escobar of Kansas City. Elvis Andrews, of course, of the Texas Rangers. Asdrubal Cabrera of the Cleveland Indians, and even Wilmer Flores, who's playing some shortstop for the New York Mets, came from Venezuela as well. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, moving on. And, and I, I decided to write a story on Bases Empty Blog, JohnPielli.com, the whole thing. Feel free to check it out about Todd Hunley. And if you remember um, Todd Hunley's impact um, amongst the history of the New York Mets, he has hit the most home runs in a single season in the history of the franchise. Since then, uh, after 1996, when he hit 41 home runs for the New York Mets, uh, it was tied by Carlos Beltran. But in the history of the New York Mets, who would have thought from all those power hitters that they had, from Mike Piazza to Daryl Strawberry, Howard Johnson and some of the dominating years that he had, uh, Dave Kingman, uh, who would have thought that Todd Hunley would be tied for the most uh, home runs in a single season, and also uh, a record that he still holds to this day, the most home runs for a catcher in a full season. Not Johnny Bench, not Mike Piazza, not Carlton Fisk, Yogi Berra, anybody else you can imagine. Todd Hundley holds the record for the most home runs by a catcher in a single season. But, of course, if you're a Mets fan, you go back and you remember Todd Hunley's run in the early to mid part of the 90s. And, of course, he stood out with the 41 home runs that he hit in 1996, followed that up with a 30-home run season in 1997. However, Todd Hunley will always be remembered for his near-career-threatening injury that he suffered in the offseason of 1997, which turned out to lead uh, probably indirectly, but you know, unintentionally, but still had something to do with the trade that the Mets made for Mike Piazza. And, you know, imagine the New York Mets franchise without Mike Piazza. Piazza, of course, for what, what he stood for and what he was able to do for the Mets. Can you imagine the Mets getting to the postseason in 1999 and nearly beating the Braves in the NLCS and then following it up with a World Series appearance in 2000 without Mike Piazza? I, I would find it hard to imagine. And you look at Piazza's impact on the history of the franchise, um, you know, the, the Met fan would certainly be deprived of something if it didn't have Mike Piazza for the seven plus years that he was with the New York Mets. And of course, Hunley's injury in the offseason of 1997 led to the 1998 trade for Mike Piazza. And, you know, but let's look at Hunley for a second because I mentioned the home runs that he hit. But in 1996, he had 259, 40 run, one home runs, 112 runs batted in. Followed that up with a 273 season with 30 home runs and 86 RBIs. His OPS in 1996 was 906, followed by 943 in 1997. Add to it the fact that Hunley was about to be 29 years old in 1998. There would be no reason that the Mets would go out and get another star catcher. Hunley was becoming a star in his own right. 
And like I said, it's hard to imagine a history of the franchise of the Mets without Piazza. But remember the Mets at the start of the 1998 season. You knew Hundley wasn't going to be around until at least around the All-Star break. And the Mets were playing around with catchers like Alberto Castillo, Tim Spear, Rick Wilkins. And obviously none of them were getting the job done. And you were talking about a little bit of pressure being on the Mets organization. Uh, Some young players, you remember some of the younger pitchers, the Isringhausens, the Pulsivers, the Paul Wilsons. But they had also mixed the group with some veteran players there. So this team was expected to start winning pretty soon. And the Mets, with their catching tandem that they had, was just simply not getting the job done. But you could say that it was possible that the Mets could not have traded for Piazza. And, you know, even with the Hunley injury, of course, you know, the trade that the Mets made, sending, amongst others, Preston Wilson over to the Florida Marlins, changed all that. Now, Hunley came back. He was without a position. Instead, he was placed in left field, where we all remember was a complete disaster. Hunley did not like being out there, and eventually, as the season went on, he served as Piazza's backup, just simply played on games where Mike needed a day off or a little bit of a blow here and there. But after the 1998 season, it obviously became evident that Hunley was going to get traded. Uh, The only thing sitting in the way of that was the status of Mike Piazza, which, let's remember, we go back to this time, I I think it's pretty easy to forget that Mike Piazza was a free agent, and there was a very good chance that the Mets were not going to bring him back. In fact, owner, uh, chief owner of the Mets, and uh, you know, owner to this day, Fred Wilpon, was not really in favor of giving Piazza the type of contract that he was commanding. Of course, uh, co-owner Nelson Doubleday was the guy that ended up making sure this deal got done, and Piazza ends up. Uh, signing a seven-year, $91 million contract that carried through to the 2005 season. But, uh, you know, the thought was at the time, Hundley was a property of the Mets. You know, he wasn't a free agent. Piazza was. So the Mets could have, perhaps, if they were outbid or decided they didn't want to retain Piazza, could have gone with Hundley as their everyday catcher for the 1999 season. But, of course, on December 1st, 1998, the Mets made a trade with the Los Angeles Dodgers, sending Hundley over to L.A. for outfielder Roger Cedeno and catcher Charles Johnson. And, of course, Johnson was immediately dealt to the Baltimore Orioles in a deal that brought the Mets' right-hand relief pitcher, Armando Benitez. Hundley had a little bit of a slow start in L.A., He hit just 207, but he did hit 24 home runs for the Dodgers in 1999. He followed that up with a very good 2000 season. He had a career-high 284, another 24 home runs, drove in 70 runs, and also set a career-high with a 954 OPS. After 2000, Hundley was a free agent, and he signed a four-year deal with the Chicago Cubs. Of course, his father, Randy, played for the Cubs for several years, so he went went to Chicago where his father played. But uh, though Randy Hunley was far from a star, um, he was kind of liked by the Chicago fans. You couldn't say the same about Todd. He was a guy, a power hitter, expected to produce right away in the 2000 season, and that did not work out, of course. I'm sorry, 2001. Uh, he had a horrible time. In 2001, he hit just 187, 12 homers, 31 RBIs, followed that up with a 211 season with 16 home runs and 35 runs batted in in 2002. The Cub fans booed him mercilessly and really gave him a hard time. Hunley's experience with the Cubs was not 
good at all. And then finally, for his own sake, he was dealt back to the Dodgers after the 2002 season. Now, uh, his first little chance he had to play, he wasn't really a starter with the Dodgers. Uh, in fact, after his first little run, and he ended up uh, missing some time, he wasn't even the backup catcher. Paul LaDuca was the starter, and by the end of the season, David Ross, a guy that we all remember pretty good from the Boston Red Sox of last season, uh, was the backup catcher. And Hunley was only 6 for 33, two home runs, 11 RBIs in 21 games. And then, you know, he did miss a significant amount of time from May 3rd to August 31st of that season. And in, in September, he was essentially just a pinch hitter. Afterwards, he missed the 2004 season, though he managed to make $7 million from the deal that he signed with the Chicago Cubs. He finished off his career as a 232 hitter, 209 home runs, 599 runs batted in, a 763 OPS in 1,225 games. Many assume that Hunley took steroids during his career. I guess some can assume that Mike Piazza did as well. Call me stupid, but I've never had interest in accusing players of doing steroids without proof. We're talking about a, ter a terrible time in the game where unless there's failed drug test, unless there's absolute concrete evidence, I refuse to acknowledge that a player did steroids uh, if there is no proof along that line. That being said, rather than call anybody out without proof, since there's no record of confessions, failed drug test, or teammates ratting somebody out, I put the blame on Major League Baseball for not having these tests mandatory earlier. Because of this, I refuse to accuse a player just for the sake of body mass or season numbers. I just don't have time for that. In conclusion, Todd's father, Randy Hunley, who obviously had no thoughts or ties to steroids, he played 10 seasons for, for the Cubs and also played with the Giants, Twins, and Padres over his 14-year career, finished as a 236 hitter with 82 home runs, 361 runs batted in, and a 642 OPS in 1,061 games. Once again, John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. As we, uh, One thing I want to touch before we finish this hour is talk a little bit about uh, baseball, where it is right now. If you're a local fan, you're watching the New York Yankees uh, kind of battle through some injuries. Mark Teixeira out of the lineup. You're still waiting on the word for Carlos Beltran over whether he's going to have surgery on his, uh, you know, on his injury. And that obviously is a big deal. If he avoids the surgery, hopefully he can be back on the field soon. But, you know, Mark Teixeira being out, Derek Jeter, uh, though, he, though he's done a good job being in a lineup just about day in and day out, he is, he, he is certainly not the player that he was before. And the Yankees are trying to fill in, similar to the way they did last year, with, with some, some players like a, like a Yogernis Solarte, uh, Kelly Johnson has actually struggled. Brian Roberts has been okay. Uh, Brian McCann has played first base. Of course, John Ryan Murphy has done a very good job hitting as the backup catcher. And, you know, he's going to get himself in the lineup a little more. But, you know, the, to the Yankees, and I've said this before, it's all going to come down to their pitching and their starting pitching in particular. 
I've said that I really do feel that Hiroki Kuroda is on the last strings of what I think is going to be the end of his career. He may make all his starts this year, but to me, he's a four, four and a half to five ERA pitcher. And I don't think he should be put towards the top of the rotation. And I said this coming into the season that I really felt a lot of the stress and a lot of the pressure on a New York Yankees rotation was not going to be on Masahiro Tanaka, who I really thought all along was going to be able to pitch okay. He's going to be very good to great. And I think the Yankees probably didn't have to worry about it. That's why they paid him all that money. He is, he is may not be worth in uh, some of the, uh, the bank record keeping fans' minds, but for the amount of money that he's making, I think the results that you're seeing from Masahiro Tanaka are what could be expected. But a guy like CC Sabathia coming off of a down year, uh, Ivan Nova, Michael Pineda, I thought they were both going to be very key to the Yankees' rotation this year. Of course, you know about Nova with Tommy John surgery. And, of course, Pineda is still on the disabled list right now. The Yankees have three right now, three starter spots with Sabathia, Pineda, and Nova out of the rotation that they're patching in with guys like Vidal Nuno, David Phelps, and Chase Whitley. And this is a situation where the Yankees uh, would obviously ideally like to have Pineda and Sabathia back, which I think they can get soon. But what if they get these guys back later as opposed to sooner? And I've talked about it before, possible trade for the Yankees. There are some starting pitchers that you figure are going to draw some interest from some teams and the teams themselves may be looking to move. But the question is, what do the Yankees have in their farm system in regards to making a deal like this? That, to me, is the problem. You could talk about the Yankees' need to trade for a guy like Jeff Samarja, but you got to tell me, if you're the Chicago Cubs, what are you looking to get back in that deal? It's not going to be Brett Gardner. And let's be honest, Yankee fans don't want Brett Gardner to leave. They wouldn't trade him for Brandon friggin' Phillips. Brandon Phillips, an all-star. I don't care how much the, Sab the anti-Sabre guys hate him. He's still a pretty damn good ball player and better than Brett Gardner. So, he, you know, Brett Gardner's not going to be in his deal. Uh, it wouldn't be enough, even if the Yankees were willing to deal him. But a guy like Mason Williams, Gary Sanchez, is that enough to get a guy like Jeff Samarja? It, it, it's, it's certainly something to be seen. And I think the Yankees, if we go any further with these guys out, I think they will go out there and make a move for a starting pitcher. Uh, big thanks to my guest in the first hour, Chris Hammond, on the other side of the five-minute break here, uh, right here on the Pass Ball Show. I'm going to speak with B. Martinez as well as Matt Mieske. See you in five minutes. <laughs> 